Welcome to the Spirit Guide Society podcast. My name is Pedro Shanahan and I'm your spirit guide. We originally released this podcast on November 2nd, Whistlepig with Matt Bostick. Unfortunately, that is the day that we received the news of the passing of the American whiskey legend Dave Pickerel. So in honor of the amazing Dave Pickerel, co-founder of Whistlepig Whiskey, We now release this podcast, Whistle Pig, with Matt Bostick. We hope you enjoyed this podcast responsibly. Rest in peace, old friend. Show of hands, who has had Whistle Pig before? All right, so pretty much everyone here. That's why we have so many RSVPs. So Whistle Pig, if you're not familiar with Whistle Pig, we make rye whiskey. We're based in Shoreham, Vermont. Um, If you've ever had Maker's Mark before, then you would know our lovely master stiller, Dave Pickerel. We are very fortunate enough to have him. He left Maker's Mark to start his passion project of rye whiskey, which has turned into Whistlepig. Raj Bakta and Dave Pickerel are our owners. Uh, With those two together, uh, it's really more of a family-driven, family-oriented whiskey company uh, based here in America, trying to supply jobs and be basically a small business on a national scale, which has been very successful for us. If you guys don't know what the Black Prince is or Boss Hog, show of hands of Boss Hog fans, anybody seen that? All right, the Boss Hog is a yearly allocated product that we make. It is gonna be amazing, barrel proof, and finished in some of the world's best casks. Uh, Last year, Dave released the Black Prince, which is finished in Armagnac casks, and won Best Whiskey in Show by San Francisco Spirits Competition. Uh, So that little tidbit was kind of what pushed us into the marketplace this year with a running start. And we're super excited to showcase for you guys tonight what is called farm stock. Farm stock for us is a, is a, is a story, it's a journey. As all of our whiskeys tell a story, each one has its place in our kind of dynasty or destiny as it would be. The farm stock addition to our whiskey world, this is the true journey of our homeland, of Shoreham, Vermont, of our own rye whiskey. When we started in 2014, we started making our own whiskey. 2014, we started making our own whiskey on the farm. Um, we didn't actually release anything because we were running our stills, testing what we wanted to do. People were asking, guys, what are you going to do with your, you know, with your whiskey you're making on the farm in Vermont? We decided to answer with a blended whiskey called Farmstock. So two, two years ago, we released Farmstock 1. Farmstock 1 for us was... Uh, The first time any of the distillate from the farm in Vermont had been put into any bottle. Farmstock 2 is the evolution of that first whiskey. So what we're going to see over the next few years with Farmstock is the story and journey of that first distillate from our farm and how it grows with our brand. Uh, That's kind of the best way to explain what Farmstock is. It's the story of our own distillate. Since them making their own whiskey. So uh, all of you folks who are Whistlepig fans, you may not know that up until now, most of all that is stuff that Dave has been buying from other distilleries. Uh, some of which he's, I mean, Dave Pickerel coming from Maker's Mark is someone who, um, he really had a lot of uh, contacts. He still has a lot of contacts in the whiskey world. So he's using those contacts to get his hands on some really amazing barrels of rye. And if you're familiar with Beam Sumptory, the company that owns Maker's Mark, they also have this rye distillery up in Northern Canada the Alberta Rye Distillery, which is responsible for making more rye whiskey than the rest of the world combined. So it's some amazing, amazing rye. And although Whistlepig doesn't talk about where they allocate their whiskey from, 
knowing Dave and knowing his industry context, it would be reasonable to assume that he might be able to get his hands I'm on gonna, some I'm of that. I'm gonna touch on that right there, Pedro. Touch so, on it. The, with, with farm stock for us, as most whiskey producers, they, they're not very transparent about where their whiskey's coming from. If you look on the back of every farm stock bottle, it's got our fingerprint. It tells you exactly the distillate, where it came from, the wood that it was in, and where it was produced. So for example, the 45% uh, of this barrel is six-year-old rye whiskey from the state of Indiana, from MGP, in American Oak, char number three, from lot 419. We allow you to trace every bottle back to its original destination. Uh, we wanna have this transparency in farm stock, so that way you can really see the evolution of our own whiskey alongside the whiskeys that we supply into our other SKUs. So yeah, so if you're not familiar with the MGP stuff, uh, that's in Lawrenceburg, Indiana, and for years, it was the Seagram's plant. It was a massive, uh, during the early 80s, it was a massive Seagram's plant. Uh, and Seagram's being an American blended whiskey, they had a ton of rye whiskey they were making that was never in originally intentioned to be a standalone whiskeys. They were whiskeys that were going to be blended, thus these really, really high rye content. It wasn't really, that wasn't really where the American palate or even the international palate was at back in the 80s. Nothing super intense and spicy. But as we become more savvy as a nation in terms of what we like, and as, as the world too has become more of an international place with people sharing their food cultures, uh, we've all developed richer palates, and thus these whiskeys that probably would have never sold on their own now are highly sought after. Yes. And Dave, being someone who knows a lot about the art of the barrel as well, is really good at selecting small batches to then bottle for the Whistle Pig line. Yes. So I know everybody in your hand right now, we have the 10-year, correct? All right, so the 10-year rye whiskey that's sitting in front of you at the moment, this is where it all started for us. Uh, as Pedro kind of touched on, when Dave left uh, Maker's Mark to start Whistle Pig, they went up to Alberta to ADL, and we're searching through the barrels, picked out a lot, and told them, they said, literally, here's a check, don't cash it, we'll be back next week, we're gonna make this happen. And that's literally how it started. They found the barrels, came back a week later, they said, here's our game plan, and Whistlepig was off and running. Um, since then, we still source our tenure from Canada. Uh, everything is finished at the farm in Vermont and bottled in the, in the farm in Vermont. So the tenure in front of you, it is tenure-aged rye whiskey from Canada that is then finished in ex-bourbon barrels. The reason it is finished in old bourbon barrels is to give you this kind of notion of sweetness without adding corn to the mash build. Uh, so this is 100% rye, and without it, without having any kind of sweetness, it would be very aggressive on your palate. Be very spice-forward, which most ryes can be, and sometimes hard to palate. What Dave has found being this genius of whiskey is that we can kind of skip past this idea of these deep tannins in the wood and present you something that comes out smooth at the end. After our new whiskey goes into a brand new barrel for roughly seven to nine years, when it starts to pull out those really deep tannins, which is what's gonna make it astringent and more spicy in the palate, we take that out and we put it into a used bourbon barrel to let it finish for the rest of its time. By skipping over that, that deep tannin, you cut out that spice and it's left with this wonderful butterscotch finish that's so long it needs its own zip code. So stick your nose in that glass. If you're not familiar with the tin here, breathe in gently through your mouth and then, you know, describe what food words you're reminded of. You know, your sense of smell relies heavily on your sense of memory. So it could be 
a time or a place that you're reminded of as you smell it. So share those experiences. There's no wrong answers. And it's always interesting to hear what people come up with when they let their imaginations run wild. Christmas. 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 All right, all right. Baking spices. Now, when you say Christmas, what is that? Is that a certain kind of spice? Cinnamon. I love that. All right, Very that's nice. totally legit. Green apples. I always get a little bit of mint. Banana, Banana bread. bread. Yeah. Mint. There's like some tropical spices in there. Maybe some like pineapple, ma mango. Some tropical yeah. fruit. It's, wow. It's an interesting note. It's also a lot of like caramel, butterscotch. Coming from that used bourbon cask. Where are you guys yes. getting your used bourbon casks from? Um, so originally we were sourcing the bourbon casks um, from Maker's Mark and other places in the world. Um, now that our demand has grown, it's not all coming from one place. So we actually just source them from independent stave mill. So and if you understand about uh, how Maker's Mark is made, they weather the staves for their barrels outdoors for over a year before they actually make the barrels. This allows the tannins to drop out of the wood. They also only use a three char. So in essence, it's a much sweeter barrel wood to make your barrel out of. And that was part of Dave's genius in the original creation of Maker's Mark anyway. So he's leaning back on that number three char, extra seasoned wood staves for this as well, for those exactly. sweeter wood notes instead of a little bit what most of the bourbon you ever drink is usually a four char, which is more intense char than this three char. Now, one thing I will note about the tenure, this is 100 proof. Um, one thing that Dave likes to talk about proof, and as a family at Whistlepig, proof itself is developed in alcohol to deliver flavor. Every single spirit itself has its own like ringing tune of proof that shines especially perfect for whatever that is. And for our 10 year, that number happened to be 100. Uh, shouldn't burn the back of your throat ever. Might be a little warm in your chest, but you're never gonna feel that harsh burn. And yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of mind blowing for me to think that it's 100 proof. I, I, always, I always feel like it falls more into like that classic 86 to 89 range. Yeah, in fact, in American whiskey especially, uh, a lot of the American bourbons and ryes that win the awards are the ones that are deceptively high proof. Like, if you can sip on something like the George T. Stagg, which consistently wins, like, best bourbon in the world, yeah. you're always stunned when you look at the bottle. You see it's 146 proof. Wow. Well, that's the challenge, though, for a master blender is how can you give the customer best bang for the buck? How can you get this higher alcohol content but still have this well-balanced flavor profile? That is what wins the awards when a judge goes, wow, this tastes like 90 proof, but it's actually 120 proof. Yes. That's an achievement for a master blender, you know? The tenure, we like to call Mr. Versatile. The tenure, can, it can be enjoyed lovely by itself, neat on the rocks, works excellent in classic cocktails as well. Uh, you're not gonna lose your flavor profile with that 100 proof. So for us, this is kind of the power horse. It can work in a, a, a variety of things, and it really is just kind of, to me, the heart and soul of the company. Yes, gorgeous. So now that's being passed out to you right now is our 12 year. Um, so if 10 years, Mr. Versatile, the 12 year is what we like to call dessert. Uh, this is something that just by itself, neat, maybe a drop or two of water, absolutely ridiculously good. When the inspiration for this came to Dave, it was really looking more towards the guys over in Scotland who are doing unique, crazy barrel finishes on their scotch and nobody in the US was really doing that into the extent of the rye whiskey category. So Dave, being the crazy man that he is, decided instead of blending 
two different finishes together. He wanted to be the first to successfully marry three different finishes of American whiskey. And what he decided to do was look to the old world wine regions for this help. Uh, so the 12 year is what we call the old world cask finish. This is a blend of three different wine barrels. So you have French Sauterne, Madeira, and Port. Each of those finishes themselves do a very unique thing in the palate. If you're familiar with the wines in, the, in those regions, French Sauterne, you're gonna get honeysuckle. You get this honey tinge right off the nose. You're gonna get this kind of burst of sweetness in the air, um, but still has a really nice kind of velvety texture to it. As you taste the whiskey, you're gonna have it rush across the palate and the sides of your tongue are going to start to salivate. That itself is the Madeira. The Madeira is very high in acidity and what this is actually doing is allowing all of this flavor and aromas to carry all the way across your palate and stay strong. Now the flavor that you're really tasting and finishing is the stewed fruits, the cooked kind of jams, cherry note, that kind of um, raspberry a little bit, uh, dark cherry, that is the port wine. That barrel finish is strong, it's, it's like a thoroughbred running across, and without being tamed, that's all you're gonna taste. So by adding in your other two components of your Madeira, which is the whiskey, or the, the lifting aspect of the palate, and then the honeyed aroma of the Sauterne, you get this lovely 12-year-old blended whiskey. Now, please correct me if I'm wrong, but both the Madeira and the Port, those are fortified wines. These are fortified so wines, yes. Fortified wines, meaning that there's brandy in the wine. That goes back to the old world concept, too, of not having refrigeration, being out on the oceans with these barrels of wine. The way that, the only way you could preserve wine is to put brandy into it. So you're rising the proof to the point where it no longer is going to get funky or sour or moldy or any of those things. Yeah, it, it, it becomes toxic essentially to the bacteria that could, that could spoil it. The alcohol and, level gets to a certain percentage. But those fortified wines are gonna have a much different effect on the wood than say just red wine itself, you know? like. It's gonna have a, a much more potent effect yes. on the wood because it is fortified. It's got a higher alcohol content. It's gonna seep deeper into the wood, I would think. Yeah. And just have a different, and, a different kind of effect. And it would also hold the, sh the glycerin content into the barrel as well. So you're getting that reserved sugar that is left over from those fortified wines. They're, that is essentially trapping it in the barrel and allowing the whiskey to, to pull off of that. Yeah, beautiful. So what are you guys getting though? So do you, do you understand that bridge that he was trying to explain with the three different types, do you get that or is it, I mean, just because a brand guy comes in here and says this is what you're supposed to be smelling or tasting, doesn't mean that's your experience. And that's what this place is for too, is it, what else? Yes. yes, yes and to what he's saying, but what else is there? What are you experiencing? Anybody? What are some aromas that we get? Like acacia honey. Yeah, acacia honey, and, and, wow, and that's that, beautiful. To, to me, that's coming from the Sultern. So yeah, that's on the front of the palate more. What are you guys getting? Anything else? Like, I'm kind of getting, like, kind of like a dry palate. Like, uh, dryness in the palate? Yeah. Okay, so that, that's, that should be the way that with the whiskey rolling across your palate, those tannins from the port and everything from the wood mingling together with the acidity to finish into a clean, dry finish. You don't want it to be lingering sweet. You don't want it to be, you know, lingering too hot. Uh, that's kind of that perfect balance where everything finishes in harmony and then just kind of leaves you thinking about it. It's beautiful. And so when you guys do the, the yearly allocation, now of the old world stuff, how much do you produce every year? That's one of our core lineups. So I mean, we've not had any shortages in the marketplace on that, and I don't expect us to have shortages in the marketplace on that. 
as per barrels per years per year, I'm not the one to speak on that. But you know, it is. You know, we order the barrels based upon last year's predictions and stuff. Okay. So it should always be around. The 12 year shouldn't be going anywhere. The 10, 12, and 15 year should be readily available in most most liquor stores. You should be able to get. And what what bottle price are we looking at for that? Whistle Pig 10 as opposed to the Old World 12. Okay. So the Whistle Pig 10, it's going to find in most retails is about $89. Uh, you could find it down all the way to 84 depending on where you are. Uh, but 89 is usually the consistent spot all the way across California. As we move into the 12 year, it's going to be more of that 125 to 150 mark depending on your, uh, on your store. As we get to the, uh, the farm stock, which is what we're going to taste next. The farm stock, uh, that is actually going to be one of our lower priced items. You should be seeing that about 75 on the shelf. And then the 15-year, about 210 to 220 on the shelf, depending on your retailer. So, like, maybe there's a difference in palate here. How many folks like the 10-year the, the best? Show of hands, 10-year? Oh, really? Okay. Everybody else like the 12-year more? All right. The old world is yeah. a sweeter, fruity finish. Okay. Is it also all rye? Yes. It's 95% uh, rye, 5% malted barley. So again, no corn. Um, none of our mash builds include corn. Uh, they might have malted barley in it, uh, just to kind of add a little bit of depth to the palate. But uh, no corn, just rye malted barley. Beautiful. All right. So, so the twelve years eighty-six proof. Where the first one was a hundred, twelve years eighty-six. A lot softer. A lot softer. All right. So uh, I think we're gonna come around with the farm, farm stock right now. You have to empty one of your glasses, please. Stephanie and Evan are coming around, so make it easy on them here. Show them an as, empty glass. In the progression of things, as we talked about, number 10, that's Mr. Versatile. You know, can work in a lot of things. The 12-year, we like to say it's, it's, it deserves dessert on its own. It's wonderful. And uh, don't really need to mix it with anything. Just a, a clean, pure whiskey to sip on after dinner. The farm stock, as I said, this is our story. This is the evolution of the brand. Uh, it is really the kind of transition of our lives into actually producing whiskey on the farm, which is the best thing that we can possibly do. Uh, it includes what we like to call triple terroir, which means that we're using our water, our grain, and our wood. So our 15-year and the two-year that is in the distillate are finished in Vermont Estate Oak. That means we are taking American oak from our farm in Vermont, and we are sending that off to independent staves to be produced into our own barrels to finish our own whiskey in. Now, is that, is that Quercus Alba? Is that American white oak, or is that a different variety? It's, Amer up in it's American white oak. Okay. Yeah. But it's at the highest growing altitude in America for the species. Oh, wow. Uh, so with that and the harsh winters, you get a different growth pattern in the rings, which then implements different characteristics in the barrel. You can also think about uh, how the weather affects wood. You think about tannins as being a way that a tree protects itself from the elements. And so in a place that's hot, down in the south, say in the Ozarks during summer, the tannins in that American oak are going to be different than the tannins that come from an American oak tree that's in Minnesota or up in Vermont. Because the, those southern oaks, uh, southern Ozarks, they don't have to deal with the same kind of winters that they do up in the north. So the tannin levels in the wood is going to be different, and that's going to impart different flavors to that wood. So see if you can tell the difference, because most of you have probably had a good amount of bourbon in your life, and so you're acclimated to that Ozark oak. So maybe on this one, you can pick up the difference. Maybe you can get a sense of how that oak in the Northeast is different 
from the stuff more in the so, south. So with the farm stock, this is a completely different kind of expression than what our other core, core items are. Uh, with that being, or the reason of that being is because it is a blend. So it is a blend of three different whiskeys. It's got a two-year-old straight rye whiskey, a six-year-old straight rye whiskey, and a 10-year-old straight rye whiskey. So the two-year-old whiskey that's in there is actually being produced on our farm in Vermont using our own grain, our own water, and then it's actually aged in our own wood. The six-year that is in the bottle is what the same juice that goes into our 12-year. So it's from Indiana, um, essentially the exact same whiskey, just six years of age. We pull it out to blend. And then the 10-year, so a 10-year finished, uh, or unbourbon finished rye. So it's the same whiskey that comes out of Alberta for the 10-year before it sees the bourbon finish. Uh, so it's just a clean, classic oak barrel at that time. All right, so some Alberta distillate, yes. some Indiana distillate, and, and some Vermont, Vermont distillate. Yes. Beautiful. So we will constantly have those three core distillates in the farm stock each year. The percentages will change. So I can read the percentages for you. You got 32% is two-year age rye whiskey from our farm. 46% of that is coming from Indiana. And 22% of that is from Canada. Beautiful. So you guys, stick your nose in that glass to see if you can tell the difference. So, you know, this is a different kind of wood. Can you get that Vermont oak in there? Is, it, is there something that smells different to you? Yeah, more butterscotch, more vanilla. Uh, as the age of the whiskey changes too, the perception of that whiskey uh, will change. The, the amount of time it has had to spend in that barrel will really influence. If you had the fortune of tasting the farm stock one last year, you might remember that it was very green or hot is a term that we like to use in the sense of saying that it was alcohol predominantly forward. Um, with a little bit of green notes to it, meaning that it was you were tasting more of the distillate and not necessarily the barrel. As whiskey spends more time in barrel, you stop tasting the harsh parts of the distillate and the flavorful parts of the barrel, which is what makes whiskey as delicious as it is. Yes, sir. Um, and I'm not sure if you already have or not, but are you planning to make 100% Yes, so that is kind of the progression of our story. Um, as Dave likes to say, collect a bottle of each one until we get to 100% distillate, and then you can look back and see how we messed them all up. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so the plan for us is to one day get to a point where we actually have 100% farm distillate bottled whiskey. Um, when that will be, we don't know. I don't know the answer for sure, but each year we will get a step closer to that. Yes, so each year, I mean, we'll gradually increase our own distillate and pulling back from the distillates out of Indiana and Canada. So the question the gentleman asked is, is there any benefit to home aging uh, whiskey? So he, for example, he's got a small couple of, I guess, cocktail barrels from Whistlepig. He's asking if it will make a, an influence or change the whiskey if he adds it to the barrel. The answer is yes, but not to the dramatic extent that you might believe. Um, or maybe not to the positive effect that you like. You have to understand that all the whiskey that you've been drinking most of your life comes out of a 53-gallon barrel. Therefore, we're very attuned to not only flavors, but to texture. So you can put whiskey into a smaller barrel, but that's a different ratio of surface area of whiskey. Your tongue is gonna be able to tell the difference texturally. You understand what I'm saying? Like, just because it has a similar flavor profile doesn't mean it feels the same in your mouth. You're gonna taste it and be like, 
something's different because of all your experience in drinking whiskey comes from such a huge barrel. The moment that you take it out of a really small barrel, you're not an idiot. Your body's like, wait a second, something else is happening here. So you can play around with those barrels at home. It, it might not be something that you're pleased with. Just because it has more contact of oak to whiskey doesn't mean it's better. But I mean, it's also great to make actually make a cocktail and put it in there, let it sit for a few months and taste it. Yeah. Sure. I prefer to have my cocktails made right in front of me. I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> yes, sir. okay, like, I don't need something that's out of a barrel that's been sitting for two months when I've got a bartender who's really ready to go, you know what I mean? <laughs> just saying. You were talking about the blend of, um, what, the two-year, the three-year, and the ten-year? Two, three, and six. Or two, six, and ten, yes. Yeah, and I've always been so fascinated. It's kind of a dumb question, but do you experiment? You try it at 45 and go, no, it needs to be 46. Is it an accident, or is it, is it do you try it every iteration? So that is the art of, of blending. Uh, so we have Dave Pickerel, master distiller, is also our master blender. And then we have Pete Lynch, who is our on-farm master blender. Um, it's the magic of those gentlemen. To them, it's really, they're the ones who can take, as Dave likes to say, take two fence posts and start them at the, the top and the bottom. So if you're, say, 0% and 100% and start trying it and bringing it in and bringing it in each time. So they're, they're tasting these percentages back and forth until they figure out that, okay, at this percentage, it's singing right in this blend. And at this percentage, this is singing right in this blend. And each year it will change because the whiskeys have changed or the selection of whiskey that we are choosing is different. So that uh, kind of the story back to the 12 year as Dave likes to say, when he was making the 12-year, his apartment looked like a scene from Breaking Bad just without the crack. <laughs> and he's in there with beakers and test tubes and drop it's, and finally, you know, he's like, maybe I'll try 10% of port and taste it. And he's like, no, 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 we gotta bring it back to nine. And it was just really give and take. And yeah, it's a it's a fun job, but it's a long process. Thank you. Welcome. So once, once so they don't spend any time in cast. So they are blended to bottle. So what they what we do is we actually have a stainless steel vat. Uh, so at the proportions noted, the the farm will pull by volume 36 percent or whatever it is and mix into the vat. That will be agitated together and let sit for a few days to kind of re recompose, and then we put it into a bottle. So it's not sitting in a barrel in that blended percentage. Uh, it is blended to be bottled at that percentage. Yes, ma'am. No worries. Yes, You're in the right place. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. <laughs> He's got a banana in his pocket. <laughs> that sounded horrible. Okay, so when you say that, do you have to find this blend that sings right? Like, what is... What does that mean? Like, what is, so, what is it that's sounding off in someone's mind when they're saying, okay, this is... So, so that, that is for Dave. So our, our master distiller, when we decide to come out with something new, it is a brainchild of him. It is a idea that is trapped in his mind that he's trying to capture and pursue. Uh, so that blend is whatever that magic idea was, when it finally clicks right, that is it so for us. For which one? For this, one. For this farm, farm stock? stock yeah. So this farm stock was an interesting take, actually. We 
went out to the world of bartenders and said, let's blend this together. So we, host, we hosted blending events all the way across the country and allowed bartenders to actually come up with the four whiskeys that we were going to final, finalize from. And with those whiskeys, Dave put together the final blend. Um, so this one was not like the first one where it was adding the new distillate in there to a percentage where it was noticeable but not overpowering. This one, it was trying to showcase the new distillate in its own right and then using the other guys to kind of push it to the right flavor. Um, each year, again, it will change just because it's really what is singing right at that moment or whatever the idea is that Dave wants it to be. Um, so you'll see the evolution and you know one might be better than the other. So you never really know. But that's a really excellent question. And it, it also points to the fact that whiskeys are always gonna be subjective. For one thing, they're always liquid. So what someone makes this year is gonna be different than what you're gonna taste next year or a couple years from now. And each master blender has their own idea of what they're trying to achieve bottling to bottling, batch to batch. And so that's the beauty of this exploration is we see how the world changes through the eyes of these different blenders, what they're trying to achieve, how their tastes are changing and how they think we might be wanting to taste things. They're trying to anticipate what we will like, right? Because we're the ones who are gonna buy it, so. But it's, it's an excellent question. But it's always gonna be subjective, and that's why things like distiller's editions or limited edition whiskeys are really fun because it's essentially some master blender here, she's trying to capture lightning in a bottle, something really special and unique. Rye whiskey is just now on a, on a resurgence. I mean, if you would've asked somebody in 2006 who drank rye whiskey, they would've probably said their grandfather. Uh, you know, it wasn't until kind of the reassurgence of craft cocktails that rye whiskey was kind of put back into the idea of drinkers. And, you know, in that category alone, you're trying to see how, how will this grow? How will the American palate change? You start looking at culinary ideas, uh, how restaurants are changing in the U.S. It's a good forecasting trend to tell how the palates are going to change for alcohol. Uh, so as we get more adventuresome in our food, people be get more, become more adventuresome in their drinks. And, we, you know, we buy single barrels of bourbon here all the time, and we are in a high-volume bar, so we're going off of feedback that we get from the customers all the time as to what, when sometimes we'll buy a barrel and it, it won't be very popular. Other times, we'll have a barrel that just flies out. And so you start to understand that, like, we, I don't always buy a barrel based on what I'm looking for personally because I'm a whiskey nerd. I like things like at 120 proof, but the average person might not at all. So you try to guess and to please the average buyer as opposed, and, and of course it's fun to play around and get something that's a little off the beaten path, but I mean, always you want more people to be more happy, right? We're so, all an average. Ah, we're all average, right? And unusual. So that's a great question. And it actually kind of leads into the next part for us. So each one of our SKUs or each one of our whiskeys that we put out, uh, it's kind of made an idea of a category in its own right. So if you like the 10-year, um, it's great for bourbon drinkers. You get that similar kind of idea to bourbon. You get that hint of sweetness. Uh, it's not overbearing with the rye. Just really lovely to drink. The 12-year, uh, great entry point for people who, who haven't drank whiskey a lot. Uh, a little bit more rounder, sweeter. Uh, if you're a wine drinker, you might pick up on some of the nuances of the 12-year because of your knowledge of wine. Or it just might be something that tastes better than the 10-year for you. The, 12, or the farm stock is our fun story. And then the 15-year, uh, we like to say that this is the one that needs a cigar. 
This is more towards like your Scotch drinkers in mind. Um, this is a 15 year age rye whiskey that is then finished in Vermont Estate Oak, as we talked about earlier with the smaller rings. So we were talking about the beautiful birth of this farm stock and that's a beautiful story. The very sad story was that Matt, while unloading <laughs> his car to come to this tasting tonight, dropped the bottle of 15 on the ground and it broke. I'm sorry. Very, very guys. sad. Very sad. It's luckily, a it's luckily a we had a bottle in stock. Whoa! Yeah! They go to the rescue. So, <laughs> so Evan's, Evan's coming around with the 15 year now. Somewhere in downtown Los Angeles, there is a, a parking lot that smells really good. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was very sad. <laughs> so the 15 year. Uh, this is a, a kind of my new love child. It's for me every time I taste it I'm like, oh do I love this? I don't know and then two days later I'm like, why am I still thinking about the last time I had that whiskey and it's because it has to be just it's that delicious So this is 15 year age rye whiskey uh, that is then finished in our Vermont Estate Oak. So this distillate is coming from Canada It is and when I say finished in Vermont Estate Oak the oak from our farm that we discussed earlier out of, uh, that goes to independent safe. So as Pedro touched on, with the bleaching of the surface tensions of the, of the staves, that has allowed this kind of idea of getting to a 15 year age rye whiskey to happen. Uh, this was never a thing in the past because people weren't controlling the tannins. You'd get to that 12, 13, 14 year mark and it would be unpalatable as we talked about, it would be too bitter. Uh, Dave was the one who kind of broke through that secret and understanding that by allowing the wood to cure outside for over a year, we've bleached away a lot of that surface tannin and that has allowed us to kind of push forward or the amount of time that we can age. So you're basically, you're skipping those first five years of the barrel influence because you've allowed that tannin to kind of fall off and has allowed us to add that time to the back end so we can present a 15 year age rye whiskey. To me, when you put this to your nose, it's like a campfire. You get this toastiness, you get uh, a little bit of butterscotch, you get a lot of marshmallow, um, really kind of a unique profile. Screams that it needs a cigar. This is at 94 proof. Um, when we made this whiskey, we felt that 94 was really the number that allowed the body to carry, allowed the nuances of the time to develop and show without being overran by alcohol. So that's a good question. Um, so your alcohol content changes based upon the location of the cellar, of where it's aged. Um, the higher temperature is actually going to help raise the alcohol content um, in the barrel. All of it's coming in around the same number, but then can fluctuate based upon um, time in the barrel, amount that of oxygen that it's been in contact with, heat. Humidity. Humidity is a big one. So it, it, you can have whiskey that, if it's really hot, goes up in proof in time in the barrel. Other places, like say in Scotland or Ireland where it's much cooler, sometimes the proof goes down. Uh, it's absorbing moisture from the surrounding area, like humidity, there's uh, Cavalon whiskeys out of, um, you know. Thailand. Not, not Thailand, Taiwan, Taiwan yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so it's very humid there. And sometimes those barrels are um, actually absorbing water from the air. So they can go down in proof. And, and because the nature of a barrel is that they're, set, they're an organic storage container, each stave is different. They have different levels of, uh, just the wood is so different stave to stave. 
that it's really unpredictable and you can have barrels from the same rack house, some of which go up in proof, others which might go down slightly. So that's the great mystery of a rack house is that we don't know. You can have barrels right next to each other that were containing the same distillate stored for the same amount of time right next to each other and they'll taste very differently. And that's the wonder of it all is that we don't know. It's a natural world that is so intricate and so kind of uh, idiosyncratic that it's impossible to predict. You know, it's, it's constantly a mystery that is revealing itself. Texturally, does this, is this different than the, than the ones that we've tasted? Yeah, so you, I mean, that it's in itself, the texture, you can watch it change from each progression from your farm stock to your 10, to your 12, to your 15. The more time you're spending in the barrel, the more texture you're, you're grabbing because of the tannins, because of the polyphenols that are sitting in there. So what do you guys think on this 15? What kind of, what kind of notes come up for you? Mint. 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 So a lot of times when I, when I try rye whiskey, mint and cinnamon mm -hmm. are very common for me when I'm, when I'm drinking rye. But what else, what else on top of that mint? Is there any chocolate in there? Dark chocolate covered espresso beans. Yeah. Dark chocolate covered espresso beans, beautiful, beautiful. What else? Some dill. Some dill. dill, interesting. That could be that northern oak. Do you know, is there like, to me, there's a little bit of salinity in the palate, like a minerality note to it. Uh, that's actually coming from the type of barrel that it's finished in. You're using a smaller growth ring, um, tighter kind of barrel structure in a sense. So as the whiskey sits in it, it's not going as deep. So you're really kind of pulling more on that mineral notes and less into that baking spice note. Right on. Any other questions, guys? Yeah, does anyone have any other questions for Matt? What are we looking at retail price in the last two? Okay, so the farm stock uh, is gonna be retailed about the $69 to $75 mark, depending on, uh, depending on your store. And then the 15 year, between $215 and $225, depending on the stores. Some very expensive and rare, beautiful whiskeys. Any other questions? Yeah. Yeah. New basic, like the so to be called a bourbon, it has to be at least 51% corn, right? right? Yeah. Um, but to be called a rye whiskey, it has to be at least 51% rye. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And then on top of that, most traditional mash bills, there's, in the world of bourbon, there's really three most commonly used mash bills. The traditional mash bill, which is a rye content between say like eight and 13%. A high rye mash bill, which is like 13 to 18 to 20 to even higher percent of rye. It could be, no, that's a traditional a bourbon, bourbon mash bill. Okay. A traditional bourbon mash bill. Something like wild turkey. Very middle of the road, yeah. classic American bourbon. Yeah. Beautiful, not overly spicy, but that, that rye is serving as the flavor grain to add character to the corn, which is making up the vast majority of the mash bill. A mash bill being just the recipe yeah. for that. Yeah. Rye whiskey is gonna have usually at least 51% rye, but it's a much more expensive grain than say corn. And so you're not gonna go most of the time not do too much more than 51% because you're gonna to try to get away with, from an economic standpoint, as cheap of a mash bill as you can possibly get away with and still achieve that flavor profile that you're aiming for. But yeah, bourbons usually come in between 70 and 75% corn with some rye on top of it. And then the third mash bill in the, in, the, um, in the bourbon world is the weeded mash bill, so no rye. 
okay? And that, those are basically what most people are making bourbon out of. Then rye is way more reliant on the rye as opposed to the corn. And something like this, because it is sourced from a company that was making blending whiskeys, it's much higher rye content, like 95, 95, oh, 95% with some malted barley in there. Malted barley, think of it as a, a grass that's sprouted. That's what the malting process is, bringing live enzymes into the fermentation process, which add complexity and more verdant flavors, those green notes and live enzymes, which makes for a better, more interesting tasting beer, which you then distill to make your more interesting tasting whiskey. And, and they all change based upon, they, they're, think of like a family recipe. Like your, gran your grandmother knows like the right amount of everything. A lot of places are like that. They, they don't technically spill the beans. And with all the craft distilling that's going on in America now, people are playing around with those notions a lot. They're playing around with the mash bills a lot because a small producer cannot hope to compete with the Jim Beams and these bigger companies unless they're doing something that's much different. Are there ever, like, other grains introduced into a mash? Sure. Like, sure, there's... Uh, you could make, I mean, traditionally, like say 200 years ago, a farmer's really just making whiskey as a way to preserve their commodity. It would also, they would be making whiskey out of four or five grains, just based on whatever they had on hand. Uh, the, you know, the old farmers weren't thinking of it as like alcohol per tonnage. They were like, what kind of grains do I have left over at the end of the season that I need to preserve using distillation? And that would dictate the mash bill much more, I mean, their economic reality is much more on microcosm as opposed to these big companies now where it's like, we want to, you know, buy a GMO grain that's specifically designed to be disease resistant and it's going to deliver more alcohol per tonnage because at the end of the day, they don't care as much about flavor profile as much as how much is it costing them to make. Does that make sense? Yeah. But it's changed a lot. Um, but like I said, with the craft distilling coming, you see a lot of people experimenting with a lot of those older methods, four-grain bourbons. Like the Hudson's got a four-grain bourbon, which is much more as they would have been making whiskey 150 years ago, like playing around with whatever grains they had on hand. You could make an experimentation by make a loaf of bread, you know? Like make some corn with some wheat, with some rye, with some barley, grind it all up, make a loaf. If that loaf tastes good, it could possibly make a good whiskey as well because bread, beer, and whiskey have all the same ingredients, right? Yeah. All right, any other questions for Mr. Bostic? Well, Matt, thank you for coming out tonight and launching the Farmstock Live number two. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like what you heard, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and review. The Spirit Guide Society is a Spirit Adventures production in association with Bitten from the Apple Productions. Special thanks to Tone Mesa for their post-production and audio services. The show is produced by Andrew Apple and me, Pedro Shanahan. Executive producer, Andrew Abrahamson. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Spirit Guide SOC. We'll be there to answer any questions you have, share what we're drinking, and more. And if you're still thirsty, you can always find more episodes of the show wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to always drink responsibly. That means don't drink to forget. Drink to remember. Remember.